Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Yes, it's Brendan and Mark. <coughs> oh, are you okay, Excuse Brendan? me. Oh, excuse me. I, cut, uh, I paid the penalty for cutting off the intro, man, a little bit earlier there, Mark. I thought, I'm a bit sick of you talking for 30 seconds and I need to jump in and be punchy and quick. And then I had a coughing attack because I ran out and, and grabbed a coffee there, Mark, and I know you did as well because I've just followed your lead. And I had a quick swig of it and I didn't swallow it properly before I um, launched into this episode. So welcome, everybody, to the very professional Vet Gurus podcast. <laughs> Vetgurus.com is the place to be, the place to go, the place to support us and to look up previous episodes. And, gee... We've got a cracker of an episode, Mark. This one is sensational. I can feel it already in my bones. You don't know what to say about that, do you? No, you don't. I'm still, okay. I'm still, well, I'm I'm still dwelling on the. Um, I've got it. You've hit one of my um, my fears of getting old. Um, is is I reckon as I've gotten older, more frequently I'm. Don't swallow things properly and end up coughing everywhere. Um, and I worry that maybe I've got, you know, maybe a tumour on one of those nerves or, um, or something's going on and I'm going to choke myself and, and have serious health issues or worse. Um, and here you are doing the same thing. I wonder whether this is a real thing or just one of my paranoid fears. Just another one. I mean, I, to be honest, Mark, I can't wait to die. I really can't <laughs> wait to die. I just... And as Woody, Woody Allen says, and I know you've heard this quote before from me, I just don't want to be there when it happens, Mark. Um, I want to see what happens afterwards, but I just want, don't want to be there. And speaking of dying, Mark, yes, we, I, I did mention off here that I want to talk a little bit about in our intro about health checks, specifically health checks for me. And it's good news, Mark. It's good news. Um, I've had my poo check. And I know, I, I, you, have you done the poo check where the um, Australian government sends the little kit in the mail and you get um, the little samples there and um, a li- um, and the sheet you place in the toilet, um, the biodegradable little sheet that sits over the water there and you do your business, so to speak, well, um, literally, and then you grab a little sample and then you do another sample and you collect the two of them and keep them in the fridge, which grossed out my family um, because it did say keep them in the fridge until you get the second sample and then you send it off and I got um, a little letter from the government yesterday. Um, I was hoping it was nothing about tax but it wasn't. It was um, saying my test was clear so no occult blood in my faeces, Mark, and it's a really good screening test, I think. Um, One, because it's um, free um, for everybody over a, a certain age that we both fit into but also um, it is picking up a lot of colon cancers and it, it, geez, the statistics in that little pamphlet they give you was a bit scary there, Mark, um, the percentage of people who have um, bowel cancer and the good news is it is one of the cancers that um, has a very high success rate um, with remission and, and treatment, Mark. So 
a preventative program is a good program as far as I'm concerned. So I'm upbeat this week, Mark, because my poo is clear and um, we do lots of fecals at work and I think I'd gross out the girls at work and all the staff at work if I if I took in my fecal there to run a bit of a fecal check and look for coccidia or um, giardia or candida or whatever. So, yes, so that's my news. I've got my health check back of my fecal and my poo is clear. Um, I am genuinely, um, particularly since I am a bit paranoid about um, health in general, I am genuinely pleased to hear that that particular part of your health gets a big tick and you're okay. I mean, he's a really good... I think that's one of the best things. We don't talk about these things in Australia much. We're always having a whinge about everything that's going wrong. But um, I really think that um, that screening test and a number of other screening tests that our um, our government runs, and they're... they're look, I'm not going to say they're altruistic because they actually do save uh, the government a whole lot of money if they don't have to treat people with colon cancer at the end, if they can treat them early, then they actually save a significant amount of money. But um, I'm glad they do it, Brendan. I think it's a wonderful thing our uh, our government do, and I'm glad you're negative. Thank you. So although I have the throat cancer with my coughing, Mark, <laughs> according to what you're saying, my, my rear end is, is functioning fine. Um, now, you wanted to chat about a particular Twitter or a tweet do, or I, a tweets from a particular person. You know that I hardly spend any time on social media at all. <laughs> yes. um, and when I am, it's sort of divided, you know, amongst several platforms. But I do occasionally log on to Twitter and, um, and uh, have a look at a few of the tweets. And one of the people that I uh, follow on Twitter... Um, uh, is an evolutionary anthropologist from uh, Boston College, um, uh, Dorsa Amir, uh, at Dorsa Amir, uh, in the Twitter handle fashion of describing their names. And I was really, I mentioned uh, Dorsa because, um, well, I've just assumed Dorsa's the first name. That probably is could make me look very foolish in the future. But um, uh there was a very interesting tweet which talked about um, the Sinerius mourner. The Sinerius mourner has fascinated and puzzled scientists for ages and the videos here were just outstanding because this, the chicks of this bird um, are really brightly coloured and so they live in the jungle and there's lots of predators and scientists have wondered why they were um, so brightly coloured and patterned and um, they took some footage and the bloody chicks behave like caterpillars and and there are some excellent pictures which um show the caterpillars in question which they um you know the the uh the caterpillar uh is uh tipped with a very irritating uh toxic hairs it's the caterpillar that looks a little bit like donald trump's hairpiece um and it's it's doubly interesting <laughs> Because um, the bird, the bird uh, behaves. Not only does it look like a caterpillar, but the chick like worms its way around, and it looks exactly like the caterpillar. Um, and uh, and it is quite possibly the first case of Batesian mimicry in a bird species. So I, that was just tickled my fancy this week. I thought I'd have a talk to you about it, Brendan. It yeah, and you did send me the link to her Twitter account um, or site, um, and yeah, it is pretty amazing. Um, and 
geez, some of the other some of the other articles or tweets, Mark, she has there are, are quite um, thought provoking. So yeah, I'll put a link to Dorsa at vetgurus.com on this episode, so um, webpage. So you'll be able to click on that and follow her or retweet or, or do whatever you do with your tweets. You do a lot of retweeting, don't you, Mark? Uh, one or two a day I probably flick on. <laughs> I do retweet. Uh, I, I, I struggle to um, uh, um, I probably uh, in all those Have social- an independent thought. <laughs> Exactly right. Um, I I struggle to think anything I think is important enough to share with anyone, but lots of things I read are really important and important to share. So um, I do tend to be a bit of a lurker and retweeter or, you know, depending on the platform you're following. So your observations are completely founded in fact. I don't have anything useful to say. (laughs) No, I don't. I, yeah, no, that's not true. <laughs> I don't know how you find the time, Mark. I, I, I just do not find um, any time myself to tweet, apart from tweeting about our latest episode at, at VetGurus um, is our Twitter handle, isn't it? Um, but I see I must be linked to your account because I see all this. My my phone keeps lighting <laughs> up many, many times a day with with Mark's. Um, Retweets and um, occasional original tweet there as well, Mark. Um, yes, so you um, you've got your finger on the pulse of the social media, um, haven't you? Um, yes. Well, I think that's enough chit chat because we've got a really interesting topic this week, as I, as I hinted at. But before that, I want to jump into my first news story, Mark, and this one's a little bit um, close to my heart. This one because it is of a veterinarian that um, I know well and um, or reasonably well, and I think you know as well. And that's Michael Pine at Currumbin Sanctuary. You know, you've yes, met Michael, yes. haven't you? So this is, and and I'm sure you'd love the um, the title of this particular um, story, which was from the Sydney Morning Herald: Seven Days to Test Koalas for Killer Disease. Too much to bear, and um, that's wrong on so many, so many ways and fronts, isn't it, Mark? Because I just hate people who call koalas um, and, and link bear with koalas, but they've done it, and they should know better than that um, because it's an Australian article there, and koalas are not bears. But the article is about a new, um, um, more um, a quicker test for chlamydia um, in koalas or for koalas, which will do the test within 30 minutes, which is fantastic because previously the chlamydia testing had taken around about a week, um, which meant that they had to hang off for potentially a week or so before they commit resources, including um, treatment potentially with antibiotics, with the cases that they choose to do so with the um, infections of of chlamydia, or they may not be able to release that animal for, for a week if it came back negative and it was otherwise not unwell, Mark. So, um, And there's a couple of pictures there, Mark. I don't know whether you saw of, of Mick, of Michael Pine there, um, with, with obviously a couple of koalas there to, taking a sample there. But they're, they're really happy because it um, – and, and, and Michael mentions that it only not only means faster treatment for the koala killer, as they call it, um, but a big saving of money and resources because they're not having to house those koalas. And as you know, Mark, um, it, it, it's not just um, the physical space that they need to keep these koalas. So they take a little bit of care um, in captivity, um, even if it's only short term before they're releasing them back into the wild. Um, so it's a good news story, Mark. There you go. I've actually 
given our it is a good news story and um, the 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 crux of the test, if I understand correctly, is a portable DNA testing unit. I wonder whether these things about the size of a modem. I wonder if these things will become much more wide. Like, are we going to have one in the hospital shortly, Brendan? Well, I expect so, but it's probably 10 years down the track, I'd say, Mark. It sometimes takes a while to trickle down. I don't know whether they mentioned what the cost was. Um, they they did talk about the Corumban Wildlife Hospital, which is which is where this article um, was written from, or about they rely on grants, um, and they had a $200,000 grant from the government um, in 2019 and 20, which was actually $50,000 less, Mark, um, than their grant the previous year. But I can't see a comment in the article about no. the cost of the actual... Um, um, I know, um, however expensive it is, you'll, you'll get one as soon as they come out. Yes. They, you'll, you'll need that new new technology, that... that uh, um, that nerdy nature of yours. Especially if we can link it to a phone or, you know, to, um, send it back home to our <laughs> cameras and that, um, actually. Well, let me let me go off on a little tangent here, Mark, as you <laughs> like me to do. Um, I was up on the ladder last week. Um, out, um, not, didn't, I don't know whether I've gone through this with you off air before, Mark, um, cleaning, the, cleaning the gutters, um, but also installing a couple of cameras um, and it was a, uh, a Kickstarter campaign that I signed up for probably about 18 months ago with a um, Wi-Fi cameras, um, HD Wi-Fi cameras that were weather resistant um, that would also have a battery that would last up to one year, Mark, um, so you didn't need to plug them in and I ordered two of them. I was originally going to use them at the clinic and I thought, when, once I finally delivered them, and you know what it's like with some of these Kickstarter campaigns, they either never come to fruition or, or they take forever. And it did take a long time and I'd already sorted a camera for work. So I installed them outside our front house, Mark, and I put one of them near the carport area and I put another one just near the front door there. So when Jane has her deliveries, and we seem to have a delivery every day from um, somebody with a dress or some sort of article of clothing, Mark, um, I can keep a track on the delivery person and how many deliveries Jane is getting. And um, when I told Annie, she's a little bit averse to my technology um, interests within the house and um, initially she wasn't too happy with me doing it um, and then she suddenly uh, um, her face lit up and she said oh when um, Jane's boyfriend Nathan comes over um, if they're outside and they're taking a while to come inside can you switch on the camera for me <laughs> um, and I can see if they're having a bit of a snog out front or not um, and, and what are they doing in their car um, having said that um, he does stay over and, and spends the night in, in Jane's room so I don't know why they would be doing anything in the car mark so yes um, so um, <laughs> yes so that's what I've been doing um, as far as technology goes and, and I'll tell you what it work, works very well um, has night vision as well and uh, yes so it's just another little bit of added security if we're ever away um, it can send um, I can do alerts with it and set up timing for it so um, if there's movement um, it has motion sensors there it will send me alert that it's detected something and I think it has sort of fuzzy logic or something so if the if the trees that are near the cameras are moving it won't 
um, falsely trigger it and send an alert to me. Um, and I can just look online and see what's happening. Um, so there you go. So Big Brother, Big Brother is well and truly here, Mark, at our house. Well, you know that um, I take great pains after each of our um, <coughs> podcasts to you know, replace the bit of tape over the, the camera on my, my computer because I'm not sure that you haven't hijacked it with your high-tech uh, um, uh, viruses and uh, programs that you frequently deploy yes. um, and you're wa- watching me even now. Yes, I, and the email I send you about our topics every week, it usually has a payload attached to that, Mark, so I can um, <laughs> I can hack into, um, hack into your um, little laptop there. So what's your first news story, Mark? Well, my first news story is um, sort of linked to, it sort of triggered my uh, whole um, interest in discussing the the, uh, the the caterpillar mimicking bird in our chit chat. Um, it's a, it talks about um, some caterpillars um, that, for a long period of time, it, they've they've um, given scientists um, a bit of a dilemma because they mimic the twigs of the plants on which they feed. And they can change depending on the nature of the plants. Now, we know um, uh, squids and octopus, chameleons we talked about previously. Um, many animals uh, camouflage themselves by adapting to um, the colour and, um, and texture of the, the, the substrate on which they rest. Now, these caterpillars of the peppered moth, they do this uh, matching to the twig colour of their food plant, but they can change, Brendan. And it's really um, been a bit of a confusing thing for scientists about how they do this. And there's one aspect of the experiments they conducted which um, which really fascinated me. So... Uh, Uh, researchers from the Liverpool University and the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology um, pursued a number of different uh, sort of uh, approaches to try and solve the riddle of how the caterpillars match the colour of their surroundings. First of all, they, um, they they painted over the eyes of the caterpillars with black acrylic paint. Now, stop there, Mark. What about ethics committee for this? Um, do you think this would have gone through an ethics committee or not? I hope I hope it did, and I mm, uh, there's a whole there's there's a whole range of questions that um, a can of worms or a can of caterpillars has been opened. I think, but I want to be the I want to be the person in the ethics committee room where a researcher comes up and goes, I've got this idea for blindfolding caterpillars to... uh, (laughs) um, Anyway, so they did actually go to... They did actually blindfold the caterpillars with this technique um, and then raise them on different surfaces, different coloured branches, white, green, brown and black branches and observe the changes to their colour without even being able to see the caterpillars change colour to resemble the background um, to the same extent as caterpillars who were not tortured by having their eyes painted with black acrylic paint. Um, So... That's a real surprise because you would think that the part of the caterpillar that absorbs light, um, their eyes, would be the key part that would help them to somehow change their 
colour to match, you know, to genetically code and match the their background. Um, so the next part of the experiment was that they looked for genes related to... So this is the bit where they chop the caterpillar up after they've um, painted their eyes with black acrylic paint. Um, so they looked at segments of the body and looked for genes which related to vision. And interestingly enough, they found them not only in the head of the caterpillar where the eyes are, but also in the skin of all body segments. So there is uh, the gene coding for uh, visual elements expressed in the skin, uh, but but the, in the eyes, but not just the eyes and parts of the head, but the skin as well. Um, and so the assumption is that this gene, that the structure coded for by this visual gene, is um, is involved in the the um, identification of the background and then leads to the colour change. Is this amazing or what, Brendan? It's amazing. Yeah, it is fascinating, I must admit. Um, I just... I just still can't get over the fact that they're calling it blindfolding the caterpillars. They were making them blind, Mark. They're not blindfolded. They weren't blindfolded. They were painted over their eyes with black. Maybe they removed the acrylic paint with some of them. Do you think you'd be able to remove that acrylic paint? I reckon I'm tipping that it would be shared, wouldn't it? When the perhaps, perhaps, yes. Um, and then they chop them up to, to check the um, where, which organs um, have have the um, senses. But yes, no, it's 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 an in, it's a fascinating article on many levels there, Mark. So, what do you think the um, the implications for it are? Um, well, what, what could, we've, what we've in... talked about the way that, <laughs> we've talked about the way in previous episodes how whether it's appropriate for humans to um, to uh, have genes Implanted. inserted yes. in our genome, um, and and geez, I, I think this is a classic example where well, first of all, we we talked about once the chameleons who who. Uh, how they change colour and how the scientists were creating uh, skins that use the same technology to provide camouflage or whatever. Yes, we did. I reckon, I reckon that suit with uh, with the the gene coded so that we can see like the background um, that will allow us to be like um, what's the thing in Harry Potter the the um, the blanket that makes them invisible. Cloak of invisibility. Yes. That's where we're headed yes. to this, Brendan. Yes. And then if we cross that with your one of your favourite organisms, the tardigrades, um, yes, that's, um, <laughs> then we'll be invincible. A giant, invisible, yes. <laughs> indestructible pig. Yes. Ah, oh, dear. Um, well... What's your ne- what's your next news story, Brendan? <laughs> I'm blown away about that article, Mark. That is a good one. I think we were sent that article by our research assistant as well, Mark, um, or our senior researcher, I, sh- I should say. Yes, um, yes. So thank you. We've got to give credit where credit's due, and um, and we do appreciate our the immense effort our research team as a whole and yes. the uh, lead research assistant uh, put into supplying us with those excellent articles. 
Yes, and one day I hope to visit the Max Planck Institute, Mark, and answer some of those questions that we've just raised there. Um, yes, and speaking of that, um, whatever happened to Plankin, Mark? You remember Plankin, um, <laughs> where people would just just randomly take selfies, as they're called now, of themselves horizontal. Um, in in various um, places, and it was a craze. Some of our younger listeners may not um, remember the art of planking, but um, you were certainly a a, a, um, a bit of a guru um, with planking, weren't you? At one stage, I remember at some of our conferences. I still am. I, I still am. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a natural position for me to end up in. <laughs> yes. Well, my second story, Mark. Yes, it is about bladder stones and a tortoise, a chelonian, and endoscopy. So three of my favourite, um, and cameras, um, so three of my, four of my favourite um, topics there, Mark. So it's about exotic vets in the US. Um, well, the article talks about the importance of um, annual health checks, which um, they managed to convince the um, the journalist to, to put in the first paragraphs there, there, Mark. But it was about a desert tortoise um, that was presented to UC Davis um, by referring veterinarian Juliana Sorum from Wildcare. And they took radiographs of a routine physical and they compared it with previous radiographs of a 61-year-old tortoise, Mark, and they saw a recurrence of bladder stones in it. So they referred it on to UC Davis and they did endoscopy-guided minimally invasive surgery through the prefemoral fossa in front of the hind limb and managing to remove the stones. Um, so it's a good news story, Mark. You know, I'm full of good news stories the last um, few episodes. And That is a good um, news story. And it does, well, and I'm, I'm quite um, impressed with this. Oh, actually, it's within, this is no wonder it's um, in the first paragraph and the last paragraph, they, they stress the importance of regular health checks on animals. But um, this report we have is from the MRCVS online, which is a Royal um, Veterinary College online. Um, but the original study was published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association. But yeah, I thought that was a cute, not cute, but a, a good little um, story. And um, yeah, doing those sorts of surgeries, Mark, not that I've done many, if any, um, I've probably done less than I'd say two of those. <laughs> I think I might have done one or two of them. Um, um, where I've where I've gone in that prefemoral fossa with them, um, they're fun, aren't they? Those sorts of um, challenging ones, especially if you haven't done them previously, and, and marrying all those um, interests of um, you know a bit of endoscopy and, and um, um, a bit of technology, Mark, and um, a patient that responds, and you manage to to get the um, get the stones out. You know the frustrating thing with with these, you might see something like that, and then um, you have a case the next week, um, and you get in there with the endoscope, and you can't see a, a thing. <laughs> and it's it's like looking it's like looking through the textbook of, of surgery, um, and you see these beautiful pictures of of a particular surgical technique. Um, for instance, I did a um, bilateral anal gland removal on a dog um, that had anal glands that had exploded several times over the over the last few years, and removing those remaining bits of anal gland mark, um, which I did last week, was a 
was not fun. Um, when you look at the textbook and they show you, you know, the outlining of that glistening glistening and lining of the annual sac and um, describe how you gently dissect it out. Um, gee, I could hardly see anything in there of such a mess. So, yeah. It always looks um, good in the textbooks, doesn't it? It always does. Um, I'm sort of – there's two things that I wanted to mention about this. The first one was um, that I have – I've been watching some uh, videos of uh, endoscopic surgery um, because I assume that if you access the uh, coelom via the femoral fossa, you're still outside the bladder and then you have to open the bladder – and uh, remove the stone um, and then sew the bladder up all endoscopically, I think. Yes. Um, and, geez, um, I, Brendan, that, um, I, the videos I've watched, that, um, that uh, um, sewing things up via the uh, endoscopic access, that's a bloody art. I just wanted to point out that that's not something for uh, for a new graduate to attempt on their first day in a job. No matter how many resources and facilities they have, that's something you've got to practice a fair bit, uh, I have decided. And the yes. second thing is, did you just raise the, the, um, the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon? Um, as it applies to veterinary science. I think you did. I think you definitely did. This is a phenomenon. You know this phenomenon? I don't know whether I do or not. When you talk about something, <laughs> when you talk about something, um, so you go to a conference and you um, you, you you hear, uh, yes, like yes. when I go no, to a conference, I hear yes. you, <laughs> you wax lyrical about a, a topic all of a sudden, I have about a bazillion cases that exactly fit. I've never seen them before. You tell me about it at a conference, and there it is. As soon as I get back to the hospital, there's a whole bunch of them, um, and that's the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon as it applies to veterinary science. I just thought I'd point that out for you. Mark, you never fail to amaze me with your fonts of knowledge um, or your font of knowledge. It is one font with lots of knowledge inside it. Um, what's your last news story? <laughs> um, it, uh, you know how much I love powerful owls. Um, we have a number of them um, uh, locally here. Um, uh, they have extensive territories. For anyone who doesn't know, a powerful owl is uh, one of the hawk owls. Uh, they don't sort of look like those barn owl, the masked owl face, the the disc shape face. They look a little bit more like um, gigantic boo books. Um, and so they're they're generally about three feet high, and they are bloody aggressive predators. They live off. Um, you know, they'll regularly eat uh, um, their favourite food is possums, so ringtail and brushtail possums. They uh, um, are common, they commonly feed on um, uh, um, uh, fruit bats as well, and they have been known to take cats and things of that size. They are aggressive predators. They are in trouble in our urban environments because they often survive in them because they love those little. Uh, valleys that, you know, 
uh, we'll build a suburb, but we'll leave the stream with a little bit of uh, fragmented forest. And the owls will really enjoy that uh, habitat but they're in trouble because despite being able to survive in the urban environment, their nesting sites, the age-old trees that sometimes take um, maybe 50 or 100 years to reach the point where they've got suitable nesting hollows, those trees are being taken out of the environment. And there's a whole bunch of... Um, of competing things, bees, um, feral bees, uh, that it's very, very difficult for them. So in this paper, um, uh, modelling workflows for more than human design, prosthetic habitats for powerful owls, um, there's some researchers who have um, built uh, artificial um, logs that uh, sort of the idea behind them was that powerful owls will nest in termitaria. Um, and so they've built these um, uh, termite um, uh, whole, that structures that look like termite mounds in the trees, um, but they've built them out of structures that are a lot like Lego. So when you have a look at them in the tree, they look like someone's gotten a whole lot of brown Lego and whacked them together in into a particular sh you know shape that looks vaguely like a termite nest. Um, the great thing about these, there's several great things about these, Brendan. The first one is the owls are actually using them, um, that they have been able to um, to get some owls to breed in them, which is excellent. The second thing is that they are considerably easier to install than, than you know, maybe sticking a large log or an artificial uh, log or, a, you know, a giant nest box into a tree. Um, and the researchers suggest that on average 100 to 200 kilos a lot suitable log for nesting could be, um, but these structures are only about 15 kilos. Um, and, um, and because they're built with Lego-like blocks, um, they're, it's very easy for, you know, large numbers of them to be created. The other great thing is that um, that this may well spread far much further because there are many species, kingfishers and um, and a number of other species that use hollows or termitaria to nest. So um, uh, this is an excellent um, a bit of a, a bit out there, um, but um, uh, it's great that uh, people are thinking uh, of thoughts from left field that. Um, that might uh, improve the lot of our urban animals. Yes, they're certainly interesting-looking structures, aren't they? Um, ugly is the way I describe them, but the birds, <laughs> the, birds, the birds seem to love them. But, yeah, I think the other the other part with that Lego-type construction is that they can then produce different flexible forms, as you said, um, that can fit into different um, hollows or, or, or crutches in, in, in whatever tree they're trying to put it in. Um, so, yeah, it's a... Great idea, Mark. Great idea, and um, good to see that they're actually working and they're using it, and they're even breeding um, in those in those structures. So, gee, a very good news story there, Mark. A very good news story. Um, we're just full of them this week, aren't we? Absolutely full. <laughs> Did of you it. say full of full it? of it this week? Well, <laughs> speaking of good news stories, we're going to talk about, um, I think, a topic that um, we see fairly frequently, and that is dental disease in bearded dragons. And you suggested this as our main topic, Mark, so I'm going to kick it off with 
kicking over to you actually um, about this particular <laughs> topic. Um, I certainly see a lot of bearded dragons in my practice, and I'm sure you do too. And of those, yeah, it's amazing how many of them do have dental disease uh, d- disease of of anything from mild to very severe, Mark. So is it common in your practice? It is common, Brendan, and I and I raised it as a potential topic for us to talk about because I have had a little rush of cases and um, and there's some features of them that I, I really did want to have a little bit of a, a, uh, a talk about as well as, you know, specifically discussing the way that you and I might approach them and treat them. Uh, but there are some uh, characteristics of this disease which I think make it a little bit different to periodontal disease in other species and um, and I thought it would be good for us to canvas those. So the first thing to say is that we do find it surprisingly common uh, amongst the, you know, if we do, we do quite a lot of um, uh, bearded dragon annual exams and the, the time of year that they come out of brumation is often a time that we do that examination. Um, and I would suggest that well in excess of 5% of the lizards that we examine that uh, that have gone, that are older than two years of age, um, have detectable periodontal disease, Brendan. Yes. And I think a key factor or, or comment that I'd always um like to say when people are chatting to me about dental disease in these beardies are often it is not something you will see unless you examine the animal mark so it just sits there in the background and and precisely this is something that um, unless you take the time and a lot of our eastern bearded dragons will open their mouth and do that whole threat display thing but the more commonly kept central bearded dragons are a little bit and particularly once they're pets, they're less likely to do that um, that defensive display. And so people might actually not look in their mouth all that much. And and they do tend to be a little bit difficult to do this exam if you are poking around their mouth. They And particularly if they've got dental disease, they will make it a little bit difficult, lock their mouth closed, move their head away. Um, so it is not a surprise that many people are not aware and uh, it is something that when we do that examination, post-brumation or annual examination, um, that we are starting to talk about um, a problem that is um, really serious, that people are not aware that's there. So how do we, for those people who don't see bearded dragons very often, Mark, how do you suggest they do that examination as part of the clinical examination of the animal. What are your tips or tricks with trying to look in that mouth to check those teeth? Well, the first thing I would say is that um, it's often because the the um, the animals are uh, they when they first come into the consult and you're doing an examination, they are liable to try and crawl up high. They'll often climb up your arm. Um, if you do try to restrain them, they'll they'll uh, um, and they feel threatened at all, they'll, they'll scratch. And so it's important to, um, to get over that sort of initial phase um, and to gently restrain them, often getting the client to give you a hand. Um, we'll occasionally um, gently apply some pressure to, the, uh, to their, um, uh, their eyes if we feel that we need to settle them down. That seems to just give you 10 or 15 seconds where they're still. Um, and um, then using a Q-tip or something soft, 
I'll roll the lip about the, I don't try to avoid aiming for the very rostral part of the the uh, lip. I'll aim for halfway between the commissure and the rostral part. That seems to be most flexible and often over the part of the the uh, the jaw where there is likely to be dental disease. Um, and I'll just use the uh, Q-tip um, to roll the lip up um, and roll the lip down um, to get a view. I often Initially, I'm not trying to open the mouth wide. I do need to have a look inside the mouth for other reasons. But when I'm looking at the teeth, I probably am not forcing the mouth open. I'm just trying to roll those uh, lips back to be able to have a look at the teeth and the gums associated with them. Yes. Well, I do something, not surprisingly, um, very similar, Mark. Um, sometimes I can manage to part those lips um, one at a time or maybe both at the same time just using a thumb and forefinger with some of them that are occasionally get an animal that's a bit more compliant than the others but yes I think it's a fantastic tip that um, try and look at those teeth or the the outer aspects those lateral aspects of the teeth before you try and open the mouth completely because and I usually leave the examination of the oral region and the head region for these lizards um, and, and virtually all reptiles um, to the last mark because they seem to become, if they are going to become distressed, it's with examining the mouth and the head region and, and often you need to restrain that area um, to do it. That, that's when they become distressed. Um, yes, so your tip for opening the mouth when you do need to then also have a good look inside the mouth and look at the the medial aspects or the lingual aspects of of the of the um, cavity there, Mark. So once you have looked at the uh, you know the the um, what's the, the buckle, buckle aspect? Buckle. Yep. yep. I forget my anatomy. Um, then generally that's when I do turn. If I need to open the mouth, then that's when I do turn to the very rostral part of the uh, um, join between the the, the meeting of the lips uh, of the upper and lower jaw and I'll put something soft, uh, rest that between the lips of the upper and lower jaw I and, and I just wiggle something in there um, and that generally, that location if I put something in there will generally get them to open their mouth and so um, I try to avoid using, um, you know, there's a couple of commercially available perspex uh, gags I tend to avoid those because uh, particularly the lizards that do have uh, pathology in the mouth, they will bite at that thing that you put in their mouth and um, and that can, uh, if, it, if it's something like a, a bit of perspex, um, then they can do some damage pretty quickly and um, and we try and avoid that. Um, so generally I'm, I maybe would use the, um, that Q-tip. I've just uh, used the... the uh, uh, cotton ball end to uh, look at the gums I will then uh, cut that with the scissors I have in the consult room to give me a short diagonal uh, piece of uh, plastic and um, that's firm but not too hard and I'll use that to gently insert in the rostral part of the jaws to open the mouth then I slide that back to the commissures and Generally, if the something pressing against the commissures, um, then the lizards will hold their mouth open, probably chew on it two or three times, but I can get a decent view in the mouth, Brendan. 
Yes, and often when you have that mouth open, I tend to then just use a, a thumb and a forefinger at the commissures and put pressure there and you can keep that mouth open. Um, do you use that technique? I am. I do use that technique, but I am a little bit careful because, um, well, in my clumsy fashion, more than once the lizards – yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so – there is a particularly sensitive part of the of my thumb where um where I try and avoid putting that in. So I've got to do it left handed rather than right handed. Ah, yes, that's why you're chuckling. Yes, well, the my equipment <laughs> of choice for initially opening the mouth there, Mark, is I have a whole series of knitting needles or darning needles um, in the consult room, and they work quite well. Um, to help open the mounds of various reptiles, Mark, and that's what I tend to use. Probably not quite as a traumatic as, or, or they probably are more traumatic. Yes, so uh, not not that not that the Q-tip is completely atraumatic, but um, so um, I find them work quite well because they're fairly wide diameter there, and um, once I've opened that mouth, I can then use whatever whatever various techniques I then decide to do, whether it's a thumb and forefinger technique um, of, my, of my of my hands where I still have my tips of my fingers left, or um, using that. Um, needle um darning knitting needle um at the back of the commissures at the mouth so let's jump, jump I I was, sorry. just before you jump just before you jump away i was going to say that's a good a good point to make i think that um uh we're, we're talking about bearded dragons at the moment but those um those uh um darning needles are particularly useful for um most reptiles but turtles i find them very useful for and while um, while I, I wanted to emphasise that while I use the the uh, Q-tip because I'm a bit of a klutz and uh, and I'm trying to do it as atraumatically as possible, I think there are times when I'm just using something a bit firmer, a bit stouter, and particularly when you know the anatomy and you're careful, I've got no doubt you can get away with that, Brendan. So yes, um, and there call. are there are commercial products like what are they called mark um oral mouth specula or gags uh, made for reptiles and the the variations on what looks a little bit like an, another product that people commonly use which is using a credit card you know, or a bit of plastic mark um to try and try and wedge open that mouth there but um in my personal use with them hasn't been fantastic success i find they tend to be a bit more traumatic um than the other sort of techniques that we both mentioned here but i think that's you know it's finding something that works well um in and and um it, it may be one of those oral specula that does the trick for for um one particular person and it doesn't work well for another um because yeah we might be the klutzes who are not good at good at using them and somebody else is perfect at using them without causing any trauma at all so yeah so we know we just mentioned that dental disease in bearded dragons is fairly common so what are the signs mark and i think you know we sort of hinted at the possibility that a common sign would be that there's literally no signs with a lot of them that um, that it's sitting there undetected even though it has obvious um problems with that oral cavity and those teeth there and, and potentially pain there. Um, but what are some of the signs that you would see with, with bearded dragons that are have, showing signs of dental disease? Well, I think the key thing 
in in talking about signs is that just like most of the things we talk about with our unusually exotic pets is that they're subtle and if people are not aware then they'll take them for granted probably the most common one i see is that there will be an increase in salivation as you would expect and the saliva is protein rich um, and there will be a little bit of overflow so these lizards will have maybe just a tiny bit of caked yellow brown exudate dried onto their lip and they often when talking to the client they'll often report that yes this lizard has not been um, eating as robustly maybe some of the more abrasive things that they would normally eat they've been turning their nose up at and they've been pretty keen to um to eat maybe some of the softer things the silkworms or uh, cricket uh, large crickets with soft bodies um so, yeah, I think that um, the signs are there often, but they're often subtle, Brendan. Yes, and, and non-specific, as you mentioned there. So um, it's something to always put on the list of possible differential diagnoses for, diagnosis for any, any adult bearded dragon, Mark, especially, um, or an aged bearded dragon, because I certainly see it increasingly or a greater percentage in in the older animals um than than the really young ones there do you find that yeah definitely it's a it's a disease of um a chronicity and um while we see it in some young animals um it's most clear in uh, you know animals of uh, several years or more age it's an interesting thing brendan i'd be interested in your opinion um i find that so obviously there's the anatomy where there's no periodontal ligament and these lizards i can remember never remember the their acrodont is that the right word the, the, I think that's correct, yes, acrodont yep. dentition. Yep. So the, the tooth is actually a, a little piece of bone. It has some uh, enamel and stuff on it, but there's no sort of socket and root. The The actual tooth is just an extension of the bone. Um, and so the the um, the key thing here is that the, the jaw um, to which the little capped tooth that we can see attached has um, a mucosa over it but this mucosa retracts and there's often a, a um, you know calculus and tartar that builds up first of all around the base of the tooth um, but then you can see it right over the bone and quite often um, it's a really interesting thing that um, we don't see this infection regularly extend into the bone the bones often um, we've had a couple of cases where we've uh, where the lizards have passed away for other reasons and we've looked at the bone itself of the mandible and it's shown no signs of osteomyelitis but um, there's this big coralline caked bit of calculus over the top and it's sore brendan i reckon these lizards are really sore when that bone is exposed as the uh, gingiva retracts away is that your experience Yes, absolutely, and it's amazing that that whole sheet, um, as you just as you mentioned there, of of that calculus. Um, and for the casual observer, you might look at inside the mouth and think that's the teeth, um, or the or the or the the jaw there um, with with the associated teeth. And no, it's a it's an, an entire layer of calculus going along the mandible or the maxillary area, especially the mandible, um, with them. Um, I'm just amazed at the 
the periodontal pockets that you get in some of the mark in the more severe cases. Um, and you, you can put a probe and that's where I can use that, that knitting needle, that darning needle, and it, and, and it goes right down to ventrally if, if it's in the jaw there, um, in the mandible um, um, on the lateral aspect there. And, and, and um, yeah, it's amazing the size of and then the depth of those um, those pockets that develop there. And, and they're the ones that I really worry about there because I think they're the ones that are, are going to be more prone to having those secondary issues and, and tertiary issues of, of those osteomyelitis um, conditions as well. And I do, you, one of the reasons I thought this was a good topic was because I think there that those serious cases where we have significant gingival recession and deep pockets and large amounts of calculus um i i've uh, increasingly there once was a time when i would talk to clients and say oh look we'll give that all a big clean just as we would with any small animal um uh, calculus problem with their teeth and um and yeah there's every reason to expect that uh, that we'll um um, see some improvement, but improvement in uh, of, of gingival reattachment um, is oh, takes a huge amount of time, and in many cases, I suspect the the nature of the periosteum, uh, whatever uh, there is that necessitates the reattachment of that gingiva. We've had some that I just can never get them to reattach, and I worry that those lizards are constantly in pain. So, I think there is a, a you know an imperative for us to identify this early to have a chance to get it uh, to heal well and quickly. Yes, I agree totally. In that, once you've had those huge pockets there, that the chances of that recovering, especially with those really deep. Um, one's mark is is pretty damn slim yeah in my opinion um, with them and it's do you see a, a I see a lot of these more moderate to severe cases where you open up that mouth there and you have you have especially mandibular um, pieces of bone there that have become necrotic and they've broken off their mark and um, it's a bit scary and um, distressing when you when you think that that's probably happened a fair period um, of time agree, ago. Yeah. You see many of those? Oh yeah, and and while I um, a lot of I think a lot of them take a long time before they get to the osteomyelitis stage. I think there must be some very powerful protective mechanisms at the periosteum but once that barrier is broken um yeah there, there's some uh, we've definitely had a couple of lizards who've been brought in with uh, bilateral mandibular fractures um that are pathologic in response to their extensive uh, periodontal disease which has become osteomyelitis and then led to the fractures and of course um you know they're, they're old lizards with that uh, the people are well attached to. They're often in good body condition despite the pain and discomfort they, because people feed them um, the sorts of things that are likely to, uh, to first of all, make them fat, but also um, those things are likely to contribute more to periodontal disease. They're soft and um, nutrient-rich. Um, and um, and they're highly bonded, and yeah, it's a bit of a disaster to explain to them that um, that uh, the lizards uh, have fractured a jaw, and there's probably it's going to be very difficult for us to do anything about it. Yes. So let's talk about treatments, Mark. Well, a little bit about um, the workup of these cases, and and my recommendations for anything apart from the fairly mild cases is 
we do survey radiographs of that head of that beta dragon to look for those underlying conditions that we can't see just by physically um, eyeballing them, Mark. So what's your treatment for these? Um, uh, the, the treatment in the uh, earlier stages is uh, to tr- treat them topically and keep the gums clean to use a, um, an, an antiseptic solution um, and we'll use a, um, one of the, you know, something that uh, can go into the mouth, one of the um, uh, solutions that's often used for uh, dentistry in um, small animals um, and we'll just clean the teeth and we'll clean them a couple of times a week, um, making sure that we uh, uh, gently, with um, either with a Q-tip or something similar, um, uh, brush along the surface, clean away the mucus, make sure that we've got a relatively clean bed, um, and just make sure we keep cleaning them. Um, we probably, in the first instance, are not trying to use antibiotics, Brendan. While this is a, a disease that involves bacteria, um, I think that um, that they are not the you know the primary problem. Um, they are setting up home in a circumstance where um, the the normal defences have broken down, and so trying to reset those defences is our initial tactic. So, okay, um, related to that, do you scale those teeth? Do you use your normal? Do you use your IM three dental equipment or equivalent? In the first instance, it depends whether there's calculus and tartar, but calculus or tartar present. Um, if we do see that um, coralline caking on the surface, that substrate that is the matrix of, um, of, uh, of calcium that bacteria will make in that circumstances, it provides a home and bacteria are just going to survive. So if we see calculus, we do scale it away. Um, but if we can get these early enough and there's just gum recession and not significant uh, calculus build-up, um, then we're not scaling them because we are working on the surface of the bone. And as I've mentioned several times, I think the health of the periosteum is a major factor in preventing this disease slipping past a gingivitis and gingival recession um, into periodontitis and, much more importantly, osteomyelitis. Yes, Yes, well, one of the my favourite product for both prevention and treatment of those mild cases, Mark, is is one of those oral compounds that the I think it's made by Mavlab here in Australia. It's the dental spray gel, and I've had good success with that over the years because it's basically a a, a sticky oral gel made from chlorhexidine base, I think, um, and um, it's it's marketed and registered for use in dogs and cats and horses, I think. Um, but we use it um, a lot um, as a as a treatment and preventative for, for reptiles. Um, so that's the one I tend to um, recommend to our clients um, for those for those milder sort of cases there, yeah. And I think you're, the chlorhexidine-based gels are precisely the, the best thing to use. I have read people use povidone iodine, uh, but I find that... Um, that uh, that that distresses the lizards a little bit more um, and I do worry that they're ingesting even that small amount of additional iodine. Um, so the chlorhexidine is the, the, the chlorhexidine gels are the ones we use as well, Brendan. Yes, yes. So you mentioned about not using antibiotics. Um, we're going to finish up here shortly. But um, <laughs> what, 
I mean, your obvious answer is going to be do a do a do a culture, do a swab and a culture and sensitivity on them. But just generally, what sort of bugs do you think um, you're likely to get in the mouth of of these lizards? Well, the ones that we have cultured, and we've gotten a few under our belt. Not uh, you know, not a huge number, but they do seem to be uh, anaerobes are the ones that we um, most commonly isolate, and they're generally sensitive to relatively. Um, you know, the the we don't have to go to complex, multiple resistant antibiotic um, uh, profiles. They're they're generally pretty susceptible to um, uh, the simple penicillins, or we don't have to head towards our gram negative bugs. Um, so um, so yeah, we're generally using relatively simple antibiotic uh, treatment in these cases where we do get to the point where we've got to employ antibiotics. Yes. Well, I think it's pretty similar to, to most species, including, um, well, I'm not sure about the birds, Mark. You'll know better than that with oral problems, but um, most, if not all, mammals and reptiles um, that have infections in the mouth, especially when it progresses to the bone mark is is typically mixed bacteria but um, anaerobes are often implicated Um, and whether that's a human or a koala or or a bearded dragon or a rabbit I think um, it um, applies to a large range of species so yes um, so do your culture and sensitivity on them um, those more severe cases do your survey radiographs and it's a it's a bit scary. The, the real challenge ones, as you mentioned, Mark, are those ones where you have a, a, a fractured um, mandible um, and we have necrotic bone in that region and then trying to stabilise that mouth, um, let alone repair things, um, is is exactly that. It's a real challenge and I find that a large percentage of those ones, when we have those severe cases with, with fractures there as well that have been there for a while and necrotic bone, they, there's only really one way to go with those ones and that's euthanasia. I don't think, um, you know, they're beyond my skills, Mark, um, most of those ones. Um, yeah, have you had any luck with any of those really severe cases? No, I think you're... you're um you're exactly right that once they get to that point and they're close to or demonstrating um, osteomyelitis, which leads to fracture, humane euthanasia has to be one of the the prime considerations. The difficulty is that um, it's a shock to the owners, Brendan. They they usually yes. um, not quite aware that um, that the you know they might even be aware that there's a little bit of a problem, but um, they're not aware of the severity or the pain. Um, or difficulty in dealing with it. So that's why I think it's yeah, important to look every time, look early and treat when they're uh, only at a very early stage. Well, I think you've summarised it perfectly there, Mark, and uh, it's time to say hooroo from the gurus and we will talk to you all next week. listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time we